This week on the show, we will trace the history of ARM on FreeBSD, making it less a bit more friendly. Now at BSD 1.4 release notes we will read. We show you how you create a new Ubuntu Linux jail on FreeBSD 12.2. OpenSense has a new release, MidnightBSD and BustTBSD as well. So that's all we are covering here in this episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 395, Tracing Arms History, recorded for the 17th of March 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to another episode of BSD Now. We're soon approaching number 400, so that's interesting, but we're not there yet, so we keep you hanging a little bit. And cover a cool headline here from the Clara Systems History Series of FreeBSD, Tracing the History of ARM and FreeBSD. And they start off, when we think of computers, we generally think of laptops and desktops. Each one of these systems is powered by an Intel or AMD chip based on the x86 architecture. It might feel like you spend all day interacting with these kinds of systems, but you would be wrong. In fact, you probably did not realize it, but during the course of your day, you have spent more time interacting with ARM, the advanced RISC machines, processors than any other architectures. ARM chips may be found in everything from cars to cell phones, charging cables, televisions, and more. Fridges, whatever. However, <laughs> the most important advancement in ARM technology is in the area of personal computing. And FreeBSD can take advantage of this technology. Let's take a look at the ARM architecture. Yeah, so it goes into a bit into uh, the new ARM64 stuff and you know the fact that ARM is now starting to be something that you would actually see in servers and, and laptops and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm and just, you know, how it's evolved <laughs> over the history of FreeBSD. Oh, yeah. And it's come a long way uh, going back to the very early days from the idea of having this kind of architecture and the chips, the early versions and throughout the history. And Clara has made a nice uh, job of, you know, chronicling that and uh, giving a bit of an overview article here. We've uh, collecting articles written by a whole bunch of different people and trying to cover a, a broad array of topics. So there's something more you'd like to know about uh you know tell us on twitter oh yeah they, they make occasional um requests for uh you know things what what people want to hear what they're interested in and so if you answer those there's a chance that there might an article like this appear on clara's website and of course we will cover it when there's an interesting one yeah uh basically they need to be coming out every week now so uh you have a nice little side dish uh to go you know to fit in between your episodes of BSD now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very nice. Good. Uh, so our next story is a Unix tip on how to make less uh, more friendly. Nice pun there. Uh, you probably know about less. It is a, straight, a standard tool that allows scrolling up and down in documents that do not fit in a single screen. Less has a very handy feature, uh, which can be turned on by invoking it with the dash I flag. This causes less to ignore case when you do a search. For example, you can search for UDF or, uh, or when you search for the letter UDF, you will find UDF in all lowercase, UDF in all uppercase, or UDF in a mix of cases, or any of the combinations of upper and lowercase. If you've used to searching in a web browser, this is probably what you want. But less is even more clever than that. 
if your search pattern contains uppercase letters, uh, the ignore feature will be disabled. So that if you start your search with an uppercase letter, uh, or sorry, if you have uppercase letters in your search, it assumes that's because you specifically want uh, your search to include or to be case sensitive. So if you do a search that's all lowercase, it will assume you don't care about case. But if you have a search that contains case, then it will default to matching the case instead. Um, so that's similar to the ignore case or smart case options in Vim. So how do we take uh, this useful feature and make it permanent uh, so that we don't have to remember to do less dash I every time we invoke less? I uh, could create an alias, so just you know, in your shell, turn all less into less dash I, but there are tools such as git log and so on that invoke less on their own, and they're not gonna know about your aliases. On startup, less reads a configuration file, uh, usually in your home directory called that less. For some uh, weird reason, this is a binary file and you have to use the less key program to generate it. I'm guessing that had to do with parsing speed at some point, because no one wants their less to be slow. <laughs> so in this case, they end up making their less file have dash I, for ignore case and capital R uh, for handling color control characters correctly, things like git log. Uh, sometime after I set this up, I forgot all about it. I came to expect that feature would always be on. And one day I ran less as root to look at some logs and it uh, wasn't there because it only applied in my home directory. So I ended up putting it in the etc sysless file so that it would apply to the entire system. Oh. It says bonus tip in case you ever need to disable the ignore case feature temporarily you can start less with the dash plus i option or you can type dash plus i in the the command prompt in less uh and these options will invert the setting less also uses many of vi's keyboard shortcuts so for example you can jump to the top or bottom of the page with g and shift g or use capital f to follow a file so if it's a log file that's growing it can keep uh tailing it basically oh yeah that's useful to know mm -hmm. and yes we're still in pandemic and you might have been still living like a nomad so why not look at the nomad bsd release 1.4 that's a bad segment here uh, <laughs> but uh they have a new version available and if you don't know what nomad bsd is it's a persistent life system for usb flash drives based on FreeBSD and features a graphical user interface built around open box so this is a perfect stick to take to uh, a new laptop dealer if they have open uh, to test if everything works device-wise and what's there in the release announcement let's see there's plenty of changes since 1.3.2 the last release so the base system got the usual system upgrades to patch level 4 of freebsd 12.2 the installer has been improved there were apparently problems with booting the install systems via ufi that have been fixed now and the suitable graphics card driver will now be installed and set up instead of using the auto detection on the installed system. They also improved that graphic driver detection somewhat. The menu has been removed for that. If no better graphics driver could be found, VESA or SCFB is used. And it only runs the auto detection if the system configuration changed since the last successful detection. Touchpad support has been improved so that Xorg uh, doesn't report a problem anymore with the touchpad and it automatically adjusts that to use the sysmouse. Uh, there's now an RC script for saving and restoring the display brightness. Uh, that's good to have. A good uh, or a GUI for easy installation of the Linux, Chrome, Brave, and Vivaldi browsers have been added. They allow uh, to use streaming services like Netflix, Prime Video, or Spotify. Nice. Uh, cool. So, Mike, I knew those were uh, 
it was possible to run those using the Linux later stuff that Edward and others had worked on. Uh, but making a GUI to make that approachable to normal people is, uh, you know, that's why FreeBSD needs distros like Nomad and Hello Systems and so on. Mm -hmm. It also supports selecting of other window managers if you're into other uh, a bit more slim graphical desktop managers or desktop environments. Wi-Fi manager has been replaced by network manager. Uh, and Oh, I wish they had named that anything different. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Linux version of something with a similar name gives everyone nightmares. Uh, it's probably for the switchers so that they can find some familiar utilities. <laughs> Oh, who knows? The systems, uh, our subsystem for auto-starting applications used by Nomad BSD does now conform to the XDG auto-start specs. So that's from the X consortium, I'd figure. Nice. The partition, which uses the remaining space, is now mounted under slash data. Okay, so that you have some uh, scratch space to use. Slash compat, slash vard, slash temp, slash vard db, and user ports are now nullfs mount points for their counterparts under slash data, so that users don't have to create symlinks for those. Okay, so that's done for you. And bad news for the i386 users. Since the DRM legacy came out, is now obsolete. There's no i386 support anymore for the accelerated graphics, Intel, and or AMD cards. Cool. So check out Nomad BSD, and maybe it's your new desktop operating system. But uh, to fit in with the, what we just talked about with the browsers, if you're interested, uh, here's a great article over at Hackacad. Uh, .NET on how to create a Ubuntu Linux jail on FreeBSD 12. Uh, so creating a jailed Ubuntu Linux uh, using the Bastille jail manager on FreeBSD 12.2. So it starts by adding uh, or getting the Linux underscore compat branch of Bastille and installing that. That's uh, not, I don't think that's actually in a release of Bastille yet. It's still very beta-y, so, you know, watch out using this just yet. But it's a jail manager. It can't break things too badly. <laughs> Uh, once you got that going up, then you need to install Debian or, or Ubuntu into this jail. Uh, so you can do that by first getting the DE bootstrap tool, which is basically Debian's in-place installer. Uh, so then we use Bastille and create a new jail called Ubuntu and make sure that we have uh, linprocfs, linsysfs, and all the Linux support stuff loaded. And then once our, we've booted our system with a Linux underscore enable equals yes in rc.conf so that it loads all the Linux uh, kernel modules, we can use DE bootstrap to say, I want to install uh, AMD64 version of uh, Ubuntu Bionic into this directory. Uh, use a local Bastille jails Ubuntu root or whatever you called your jail and where the, the path of it is going to be. Uh, then you can also set up your apt cache so that you can install packages and then you're good to go. And it shows how to edit up the FS tab to make sure the slash proc and so on uh, for linprocfs and linsysfs get set up correctly. And then you can Bastille start Ubuntu uh, and it'll run and then you can console into it or run bash or whatever. And then you can use uh, apt to install things. So for example, if you want to install Chrome, you can do that and then run it and hook it up to Netflix and uh, watch your Netflix videos on your FreeBSD machine. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, uh, it, they do note that a couple of tools like IP Adder, the um, modern Linux uh, replacement for ifconfig, uh, won't work because it's after system interfaces that just don't exist on on uh, FreeBSD. But I think the old Linux ifconfig is supported, like the, the the kernel syscall interface for that 
exists as a translation from FreeBSD. Uh, so you can install, I think it's net-tools to get ifconfig back and, and be able to use that. But it's in a jail. It's not like you're that worried about the network configuration anyway. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting way and it shows how well it runs again uh, doing the Linux emulation or the Linux emulation on FreeBSD. It got a lot of work in uh, the latest uh, head. Uh, and there's also a new OpenSense release. 21.1.2 has been released and they have release notes letting us know that um, the work here has been focused on the firmware update process to ensure that safety around edge cases and recovery methods for the worst case. Yeah, So that N21.1.3 will likely receive the full revamp including API and GUI changes for a swift transition after thorough testing of the changes now available in the development package of this release. Yeah, I wonder if they're using the new uh, ZFS boot uh, environment support uh, for EFI uh, to be able to use uh, like BECTL-T to do uh, a temporary boot environment saying, you know, uh, on the next reboot, start this boot environment instead, but only do it one time. Mm, that it breaks. That my company did for Netflix. But it's, it's really handy, you know, especially after an upgrade. Like if you're doing a firmware upgrade on an OpenSense or even just an OS upgrade on, on a FreeBSD or whatever, you can say, hey, Next time, boot the new version. But if it doesn't work, I can just power cycle, and it'll. That I've made, I've not made that the default yet. It'll just go back to the the previous one that hasn't changed and still works. And if it does work, then you can just use you know uh, BECTL activate uh, the name of the image, and that will become the new default. So you can even uh, apply your own logic. Like if you're an open sense, you might say temporary boot, start the new version, but wait until it's been running for 10 minutes to decide, okay, it's stable, and we'll make this a new default. Uh, whereas, you know, if it doesn't survive running for 10 minutes, you probably want to roll back the, the upgrade. Oh, ZFS I see. ZFS mm -hmm. makes a lot of things possible. Oh, yeah. Uh, so in the system area, they did a couple of things. They do not trim the string field in the upstream XML RPC library. They fixed some export API keys uh, reload issues on Safari. Retaining an index after tunable sorting in 21.1.1 update. Fix the firewall log widget update on a small fixed number of entries. Um, here's one to make uh, start TLS work when retrieving LDAP authentication containers. That was contributed by, I have to say, Dr. Christian Briffer now. So he made his PhD. Congratulations on this yeah. point. Um, going back to the, <laughs> to the release notes. Uh, they fixed IPv6 route deletion on status pages as well, or on the status page. There was also an interface uh, issue where they worked around a slow manufacturer lookup in PyNet address. Uh, so I'm guessing that was looking up the MAC address ranges to know what manufacturer device belonged to. So like if you're looking at uh, your network and you can say, you know, hey, DHCP is giving out addresses to these five devices, by looking up their MAC address in a database, you can tell what manufacturer made the device, which might help you figure out which device is which. Mm. Oh yes, because they have these reserved MAC address ranges or yeah, like the first IDs. The first four or six characters are per manufacturer, because uh, mm. FreeBSD has a range of its own to use for Beehive. Oh yes, of course we need that. Yeah, so so that's... you know sometimes when you can uh, reprogram the MAC address on a device, you can pick one from that range. And uh, that way, your your FreeBSD computer will show up on a router as you know being manufactured by FreeBSD, even though it was a, <laughs> a Supermicro or a, a, an Asus or whatever brand of, of motherboard or whatever it actually was, or, or NIC. 
you know, instead of saying it's an Intel NIC, it says it's a FreeBSD. Fresh from the <laughs> from the factory. <laughs> yep. Cool, cool thing. Uh, they did some firmware updates in the OpenSense-update utility. So they uh, made that a bit more robust and uh, recover from errors. Uh, a bit of firmware update parts, adding crypto packages to health checks, uh, to JavaScript tracker bugs are fixed. Um, in the intrusion detection part, they prevent flow bits, call a no alert, from being dropped. And they fix the policies not matching categories. Uh, a couple of plugins got updates to latest versions. And a couple of ports also were updated. Speaking of Bastille BSD, though, we have an update from Midnight BSD uh, posted here and says they've recently added a new port, Bastille BSD, uh, that allows you to manage containers. Uh, this is a port of a project that originally targeted FreeBSD, uh, but works with a bunch of the distros as well. Uh, so they have a few notes. They say if you're going to use it on Midnight BSD, their port supports the bootstrap, create, stop, and destroy uh, commands. It may work with ZFS, but we've not tested it yet. If you're using MidnightBSD2.0.x on AMD64, you likely want to use uh, a version of 2.0.3 in your create statement so that it will download the right version of MidnightBSD. Midnight versions don't include the word release in all of the case or other things like that. Uh, and so it can you just put in the straight up version number. The Getting Started Guide also recommends using PF. The instructions will work fine on MidnightBSD, but you do need to disable IPFW, which is the default in MidnightBSD first. Uh, the update and upgrade function does not work in Midnight uh, right now because it requires binary update support. Uh, we do have a binary in 2.0 uh, as it was planned to add, but the server side uh, isn't working yet. He notes there's also a bug in the port, but it uh, shouldn't affect operation on Midnight BSD. Uh, just if you tried to use the code on FreeBSD with the package integration, it might cause a problem. Uh, this came up when we upstreamed it and should be fixed in that uh, pull request now. Although we didn't bother to fix the port since it doesn't apply to, to Midnight BSD. Nice. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. Uh, you know, like we talked a bit about last week, a lot of people have backups on their minds again. And you don't want to be one of the people who wishes they had a backup. No one ever regrets making a backup, especially if they make a secure backup. So you should check out Tarsnap. It's super easy to get started. You just go to the website, sign up, and put some money in your account. It's all pre-built, all right? It's pay-as-you-go, so it means you don't have to give them much information about yourself. Uh, they do need to know if you're Canadian or not for uh, sales tax purposes, but beyond that, they don't ask for any more information than they need. Uh, they very much respect your privacy, and then you just send them money and then start backing things up, and that will use up that money, and you will get notified if you need to put in more money. So it means there's no surprise bills uh, because it can't possibly use more money than you put into it. <laughs> and it uses Colin's uh, novel algorithm for the segmentation. So when it's comparing your files to the previous backup, it doesn't do it on like 4K blocks or one meg blocks like most things. It uses a custom segmentation algorithm that finds what's the right block size for each different file. Uh, to make the smallest possible diff. And use it that, it's based on the same algorithm that Colin used for BSDiff, uh, which is a binary diff tool that's used for software updates in almost all software you use on whether it's open source or not. So like Firefox and Chrome and other browsers use BSDiff to make the updates you download as small as possible. It's used on for phone apps. It's used all over the internet. 
it is a standard for the best way to take a diff between this binary and that binary and make it as small as possible. So using that and some other clever bits to make the smallest possible diff, deduplicate those chunks against what you've already backed up, then compress them to make them even smaller, uh, and then encrypt and sign it and send it to the cloud. Uh, and because the encryption and signing happens on your machine with open source code uh, that you can read uh, and, and verify it does the right thing and compile the code you read, not just get a binary, means that's the only backup service where you can be sure the encryption happened on your machine and no one else has access to your backed up data except for people with that key and that those people are the people you give the key to. Yeah. Yep. The downside to this is if you lose the key, Tarsnap can't help you, but that's on purpose because it means they can't help the government either. Mm. And for the backup purposes, there's various clients available, uh, as Alan said, to self-compile or uh, prepackaged versions for the Linuxes, the BSDs, macOS, and Windows as well. So no excuse for not making a backup using Tarsnap because there's, there's a client. Even a couple of GUIs to pick from, uh, depending on your platform. Like You have no reason to not be making your backups. Yeah. If you need help, there's even a Tarsnap Mastery book from Michael W. Lucas that explains how to use Tarsnap, but also uh, talks about strategies to make sure you're doing backups that are good, how to test your backups, and how to prune your backups, and you know, uh, a more holistic approach than just back my stuff up. It's like, if you want somebody to just spell out how to create an entire backup regime for you, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. All right, then we should go into our feedback and questions section. We get uh, feedback and questions about all kinds of topics, but uh, sometimes not too much. And so this section is very empty then. And then we're very sad. And the show is very quickly, very soon. Uh, not that interesting for some people. Uh, so if you have a question about the show about Unix, about BSD, anything ZFS maybe related, um, then send this to us, feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we will cover it in a future episode in exactly this segment. Uh, the first one is Brad, and uh, Brad is, uh, we know Brad from uh, VBSDCon, and he has sent us another question, and he writes, Hey, Alan, Benedict, and JT, great shows at all as always. Thank you. Uh, I have been trying to get my brain around setting up dashboards with Grafana. I found Benedict's Telegraph, InfluxDB, and Grafana PDF, and was able to set up monitoring on a jail and add a number of systems on my home network. It seems to be working fairly well. The one of my jails seems to have stopped reporting in. One of my questions is there uh, seems to be a large number of permutations of backends, node exporter, collectd, telegraph, etc. Is there some reference to tell the best way to deploy monitoring assets to get best and most reliable monitoring from Grafana? And can Grafana and Influx display dashboards from disparate sources simultaneously? So that last one I know because you can define in each of the dashboards what the data source is. So you can define multiple data sources in your Grafana. And then you can say this graph should use this data source and the other one another. Right. And, and Influx itself is actually the data, the time series database that stores the information. So yeah, Grafana can connect to more than one Influx DB. Yeah. So in addition to the jail not reporting, I wanted to do what I wanted to do was to monitor my true NAS. So in Grafana, I imported a dashboard. Uh, he gives a link to that, and set up a graphite database in InfluxDB, and I'm getting no data. Well, I'm assuming you have to set something up on the true NAS to send the data to the InfluxDB block port. Well, no, it's like uh, 
if you set up a graphite database in Influx, but what is feeding the data to Influx, right? Influx is just a database, kind of like yeah. MySQL, except for specifically designed to store time series database, uh, to mm. time series data. So there's a process on the TrueNAS that needs to send the data to InfluxDB for then Grafana to go and pull it out of there. Uh, and I'm not familiar how you do that on TrueNAS, but I do know there is a way. Okay. And so, uh, any idea about the jail not reporting in anymore? Um, again, I would check the process that sends the data. That's normally Telegraph, right? Yeah, if it's uh, the tutorial that I posted a while ago that he's using. Yeah, so make sure the Telegraph process is running and that it's set in rc.conf or whatever to start at boot uh, in the jail. Uh, so first thing is going to the jail, is Telegraph running? If it is, try restarting it and see if it magically starts working again. And if it's not running, well, there's your problem. If not, check the Telegraph log and so on and make sure that it can actually reach uh, where your InfluxDB is. You know, your jail might only have uh, an internal IP address and not be able to reach wherever your Influx is. And the um, large number of permutations for backends. I know there's plenty of ways to, to skin the cat, um, but it's probably... So Node Exporter is more for uh, Prometheus. Right, so Prometheus... A node exporter takes is is one way of getting data, and it gets a specific type of data. So, like the Prometheus node exporter is very good at reading sysctls and putting them into the database, whereas Telegraph does slightly different things, right? Yeah, Telegraph has in its config a lot of pre-configuration for various databases and other uh, things you can monitor. You just have to uncomment them and put in your own like IP addresses. And Collecti is more like. <clears throat> collect all kinds of metrics from your operating system well i guess in the end node exporter collecting and telegraph are all collecting metrics from your operating system they just yeah, have yeah. Like different <laughs> different metrics uh and have different configurations some of them probably overlap uh and you know it's probably possible to get the data you get from any of them from the others uh but it depends on your use case and how you like to do it and which tool you prefer uh and there might even be a reason to run all three i don't know mm. Yeah, that's why I wrote the tutorial first for myself so that I can remember and also to to show that it's fairly easy because I think Telegraph is also developed by the InfluxDB people and Grafana is just the, the visualization component. Um, and yeah, you can exchange each of these components. You can also uh, send the data to uh, some other graphing solution. If there are tutorials or people know a good um, you know, way how they do it and we could... Um, you know, cover this in a future episode, then send this to us and we will be happy to post it here so that people can uh, try out different uh, ways of monitoring. Okay, hopefully um, you got something out of this. Thank you for writing in and uh, we would love to see you again in the future uh, if it's VBSDCon or some other BSD conference, but yeah, we have to stick with it for a while. Um, okay, so next up is uh, Dennis with a few question. questions. Okay. Here goes. Uh, hi, Alan and Benedict. I love the show and I enjoy topics you cover. Oh, great. Sending you a few questions. The first one, Tarsnap. How much space does Tarsnap take when determining what to backup uh, or DDAP, etc.? Like if I'm backing up slash home, do I need to reserve a certain amount of space based on what size of data I'm backing up? There is a cache, but I don't know how big it is uh, off the top of my head. So you can do a, dr a dry run to see how much would this take up or how much could um, Tarsnap re reduce this data from the original size? And that's then you can use to like make an, an estimate how much this would cost. Uh, there is something in the in the documentation on the Tarsnap website about simulating that. Um, but the, 
the cache directory is used to uh, store some it's, temp uh, data. To remember what's already in the cloud to make the backup process faster. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it necessarily scales based on how much data so much as how much how many different archives and so on. I doubt it's very much, but I don't actually know off the top of my head how much space that's actually going to take up on you. Yeah, it shouldn't be much. It's just, you know, doing some calculations and not taking additional disk space for that. That's a good question. It should be somewhere in the uh, Tarsnap architecture document or in the Tarsnap book. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's try the second question. Uh, it's also about Tarsnap. Uh, running that in a jail. The host is, has a mounted folder of say slash share. How do I set this up? I see that TrueNAS has a jail slash plugin or a jail plugin for that, but I have not found much information on setting this up. So normally if you want to take a directory that's available on the host and share it into the jail, you want to use nullfs. One of the advantages there is you can make the copy that's in the jail read-only. Uh, I think you, I don't know if you have to change the um, TarSnap configuration to make sure it puts those the, the cache directory, the temporary file somewhere else so that it doesn't complain about it. But yeah, uh, a nullfs mount is the best way to basically have a copy of that directory mounted in a jail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the rest of the setup is the same as on the on the main host. Uh, there's, a, there's a question for Alan. You have mentioned that you run Lumina desktop. Do you have a specific set of configurations or steps you follow when you set up a new FreeBSD desktop? And are there features of the Lumina desktop that other users might find useful? Um, mostly I just like it as something that's lightweight and the buttons are where I, I'm used to them being when I switch between all my various computers. So my Lumina installer is basically the default and I change the wallpaper. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> configure the number of uh, alternate workspaces or whatever and what to do about my second monitor. But it's it's a very stock install. You know, the the job of the desktop on my system is to get out of the way and, and wrangle many, many terminal windows and some web browsers and some other stuff. So I use the multiple workspaces sometimes to segregate different things. It's like uh, workspace number three is, is uh, our our DNS system where we have 10 different DNS servers and we have to keep all the configs in sync. And so that workspace has just got terminals open on all of them and lets me keep an eye on what's going on. And there's one workspace that's just, here's my IDE. Uh, I use Komodo edit, uh, mostly for hysterical reasons to write the code. And then I have the stuff to, you know, check it into the repository and then a web browser to, to make sure it worked as I'm, I'm working on, you know, the control panel for scale engine or whatever. Uh, and then there's another window that will have all the stuff for, uh, you know, an open ZFS project I'm doing. And it'll have, you know, a different window of the the text editor that's got a bunch of ZFS code open and stuff I'm trying and like a VM that I'm working on. But, you know, my demands from the desktop part of it are very light. It's like, just give me a bunch of windows and put the close and minimize buttons in the places where my finger memory is used to them. Uh and otherwise, just don't be annoying. <laughs> mm. Have you thought about running a tiling window manager where you just create another jail or this, this or not jail terminal to just that rearranges your screen depending on how many windows you have on that or how many terminals there are open? Uh, I don't think tiling's for me, but I don't actually know. I've never. I don't think okay. I've tried a tiling window manager to know, but I don't think that's for me. Okay. Yeah. 
cool yeah it's yeah it's your setup um then i have a question for myself well i read it to myself uh benedict question four your recent hardware failure oh yeah from the between the years from the last days of 2020 basically how you did the data recovery curious to hear about how you did recover and uh, restore etc so i had some data in tarsnap the the more um, secretive data that no one else should be able to look at you know attack stuff and password files and things like that and then i had most of my work data on a uh, nextcloud instance uh, we have also an official Nextcloud from our department now so that everyone can use that, but I didn't back up to that. I have my own. And so that is just basically install the own cloud client and sync back. That's taking a while, um, depending on how much data you have. And I mean, the on the new machine, I didn't have a complete um, time machine backup. And I also didn't uh, switch to the... I wasn't on the latest version of macOS, so I wasn't sure if that would... Uh, be able to apply all these changes so i had to on the new machine you know set up all the the settings that you do the the scrolling speed the the active corners and things like that uh, so that was a bit of a work um getting familiar again on this new home machine that i have but data wise i was fairly uh, quickly back on track uh, with the most important data that i needed ssh keys and stuff like that to log into other machines and from there i could just running uh, run a couple of um scripts to copy data back or you know do some basic uh recovery so i was fairly quickly uh back on track because at that time the lectures were going to start again after the uh winter holidays and so i needed to be back and run my lecture again and so have having the work files and the, the script and that available um, brought me back on track fairly quickly but yeah uh having learned from that i'm also setting now up a proper um uh, backing up on i will probably use my raspberry pi 3 to set up a a little uh, time machine backup that you can do with uh, base utilities uh, dan langel has a blog post about how you set that up it's fairly easy and so this will run in the background every hour every every depending on the interval that i set and backs it up to a zfs uh, I, tr I did a test run it doesn't compress very well because of the internal data format that apple is using but that i don't care too much about as as long as i have it on zfs and can retrieve it if i need it one day one very far day in the future hopefully so uh, that's it um thank you for your questions hopefully they were helpful and the next and last question is from paul about FreeBSD 13 okay cool uh, he writes, hey, Alan and Benedict, I have uh, listened to the podcast weekly, despite not usually running a BSD. That's okay. You can still listen. It's usually a gateway mm -hmm. to installing it. <laughs> um, so he quickly installed FreeBSD 13 Beta 4 as a fresh install on his Sager notebook NP3146. So far, I've had a surprisingly easy experience getting the system installed and set up relatively quickly. Ah, see? I used the USB image for the install and set up my user account, adding it to both wheel and video. Okay. Then used package to install sudo, DRMK mod, Hikari, Sakura, Firefox. Mm -hmm. I had to set up uh, the $xdg underscore runtime underscore dir environment variable and set dollar terminal to Sakura and etc profile to get everything working smoothly. I chose to use Hikari since it's an easily configurable keyboard centric valent compositor. And it is primarily developed uh, on and for FreeBSD. I always wanted to try that. I never had the chance to, mm -hmm. to do it. 
Uh, okay, so it's not the most intuitive out of the box, and the default config seems to be designed for a German keyboard. Ah, now I need to try it even more. Um, yeah, I would assume that's because the developer is German. Yeah, okay, so maybe having an, an English by default or a way to change that easily is a good idea. Uh, I haven't tried getting my Wi-Fi Intel Wireless AC9560 working yet. I gave up several months ago at last attempt. Wish me I luck. I think that Wi-Fi might just work now. With 13? Think, yeah, the 9560, I think, is the same as like what Ed has in his laptop and so on. Ah, yes. If the, the FreeBSD developers have those chips, then there's a fairly good chance that drivers will magically appear in the tree sooner rather than later. Uh, yes, the AC9650 is specifically listed in the IWMM page as uh, one of the supported models. So there's a good chance. Ah, good. Okay. Yeah. So just wait for the uh, final release to come out. And of course, you can do some dry runs here on seeing how it works on the uh, snapshots or, uh, you know, yeah, snapshot releases. And yeah, seems like a good start. And if we have, uh, if we can, if we can answer anything more in your future use, uh, it would be nice to. Uh, if you could write a tutorial, maybe for the the, dis, the Hikari uh, Display Manager, uh, that would be interesting. But yeah, it's uh, it's a good start in your BSD journey. Definitely try out uh, ZFS because the FreeBSD 13 has a newer version on it, and uh, some other utilities. We will cover probably in a future episode what's new in 13. So yeah, good luck with your uh, endeavors in FreeBSD land. And if you have further question or get stuck then let us know, we'll help. Cool, so that's uh, wrapping up this episode. Thank you for listening yet again. Uh, we will be back next week, of course, with fresh content and hopefully you uh, have a nice week until then. 